welcome to a new episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Christopher Starke. In this first interview, after our summer break, we have a very interesting episode for you on a highly timely issue. Today, we welcome Jody Vittori on the podcast. Jody is currently a professor of practice and co-chair of the Global Politics and Security Program at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. But she also had a varied career in the U.S. military and civil society. In the interview with Matthew Stevenson, she talks about how corruption affected the mission in Afghanistan and what lessons we can learn from it. But before we jump in, some housekeeping. In our internal discussions over the summer, we realized that we don't know much about you, our audience. We see the numbers of listeners steadily rising, we know where they come from, and we see who is following us on Twitter. But that's about it. To improve our content and to get new guests on the podcast, we want to learn more about you. Are you a student interested in political science? Are you an anti-corruption practitioner? Are you researching corruption in academia? Or are you just generally interested in the topic? We would like to hear from you via Twitter under our hashtag kickbackmeetup. Also, let us know what people you would like to hear on the podcast in the future. We will try to make it happen. Again, the hashtag is kickbackmeetup. Now, let's start with today's episode with Jody Vittori, Interviewed by Matthew Stevenson. This is Matthew Stevenson, and I'm delighted to be joined on today's episode by Jody Vittori, who is currently a professor of practice and co-chair of the Global Politics and Security Program at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service, but who has, has had quite a varied career in the United States military and in civil society and also in her current role in the academy. Uh, and I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about. Jody, uh, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me today. So maybe we could start out by just uh, sharing with our listeners a little bit more about your own background and what led you in particular your interest in studying corruption and anti-corruption. So, so how, how do you get interested in that topic and, and what kind of work have you done in that subject area? I actually got interested in the issues of corruption, anti-corruption, and went on peacekeeping duty in Sarajevo back in the early 2000s. There was lots of corruption going on, lots of organized crime activity going on with the various leaders of the various ethnic groups in the country. We had Troops of the various ethnic groups that their their leaders would be absconding with their paychecks and, you know, literally stealing the pensions of little old ladies and stuff like that. Uh, you know, as, as a military member, we would acknowledge that it was going on and just kind of shrug and not really do anything about it. And I found that so depressing and devastating. And so when I went and got my Ph.D., I did political economy and started looking at illicit economies and terrorism finance. And I was actually sent over to Afghanistan and ended up on the anti-corruption task force, task force Shafafiat from 2011 to 2012, and had discovered that so few people were looking at the intersection of corruption and national security specifically. And I, you know, it had been declared that you know, even by 2009, that corruption would probably lead to mission failure in Afghanistan by uh, General Allen, General um, Crystal and other commanders of ISAF, the international mission in Afghanistan at the time. But no one was looking at that in Afghanistan in, in, a, 
and an overall or not very not enough people are looking at substantially in Afghanistan as a priority. And when you looked at uh, the role, particularly of U.S. U.S. security assistance in other countries that weren't Afghanistan, it was getting even less attention. So um, I've continued to look at that and focus on that. Because as we see in Afghanistan, unfortunately, you know, corruption is something that can lead to very significant mission failure and all of the terrible responses that come with that. So um, just to clarify, when you talk about being in these various locations, this is when you're with the United States Air Force. You're a lieutenant colonel in the, in the U.S. Air Force, as I understand, and yeah. you were on mission in these locations. And I'm glad you brought up Afghanistan because I feel like that's uh, a topic that's at the forefront of many people's minds right now. I'm not quite sure when this conversation will air, uh, but you and I are having this conversation the day after the completion of the withdrawal of of U.S. forces from Afghanistan. And it's not at all uncommon to see in the mainstream media, not just in the press releases from anti-corruption NGOs, but in mainstream publications and analyses, prominent discussions of the role that corruption played in the failure of the mission in Afghanistan and the collapse of the Afghan government the U.S. had been supporting and the success of of the Taliban. So again, that's not exactly news. One of the things that struck me about what you just said in recounting your own background in this area is that as far back as 2009, 2010, senior U.S. military leaders recognized this problem. So in contrast to other places where this issue has been discussed, it wasn't like this was an obscure issue that only anti-corruption specialists were talking about. This is something that people were aware of. And so it's, enti- it's totally unfair to, of me to ask you what went wrong. And I realized that, but, but still I want to ask you what, what went wrong. It wasn't a failure of knowledge in the same way that maybe it has been in other cases. This idea was there. People knew what this risk was. I mean, is it just the case that they knew the risk and they did their best, but ultimately there was nothing that could be done? Was there something, uh, some kind of bureaucratic pathology that prevented adequate action on this? It's just that people didn't know what to do about it, even though they knew it was a problem. What would be your diagnosis for why even more than a decade ago, people were predicting that this would happen, and yet it came to pass without, it seems, measures having been taken to to address the the problem much earlier? I don't think there's just one answer. I think that would be too easy. If there were just one answer, it'd be an easy lesson to learn in, in other ongoing security assistance missions and future projects. So just to note that. But um, a lot of things went wrong. One is just the day-to-day realities of working anywhere in a security assistance situation, particularly in, in a hot, you know, very fragile or conflicted state. And of course, there's an extraordinarily high correlation between uh, levels of state fragility and corruption themselves. And so almost always, if you're in a highly fragile state, you're going to be dealing with corruption issues. You know, we rarely, we don't do a lot of security sector, security assistance missions in Sweden or Switzerland, for example. And there's a lot of causality in that too. We could get through a long thing on conflict, which we won't today, and its correlations with corruption and why. But the, the reality of working in a fragile, highly corrupt environment is that the day-to-day response, responses are in some ways, you know, you get, need to get through your short-term responsibilities. And even if you know it's bad for the long-term, you still have to still have to deal with it. And so just to give an example, one of the big areas that had come out in 2010 was a report called Warlord Incorporated, which was uh, a report from the House of Representatives 
that documented that the United that U.S. payoffs through contractors for procurement for, for moving supplies, logistics, and stuff in from the United States through usually ports in Pakistan through Karachi. At the time, we still had some lines of communication, some logistics lines through Russian Central Asian states. That these contractors were paying off various warlords. Sometimes the warlords are then paying off the Taliban in order to get these convoys through. And, you know, the convoys would come through, say, on Tuesday in relative security. And then by, you know, Wednesday, the warlord would be back to going and oppressing the local villagers and pushing them towards the Taliban and all these sorts of other things. You know, by 2010, this report had come out. There had been congressional hearings on the issues. But, you know, the reality, if you're in the field and you're the logistics officer going to their commander, you, know, you can't really go to your commander and say, yeah, I know we need fuel. I know we need ammunition for the fight. And if we don't have it, our troops are going to die. But to do that, I'd have to pay off a warlord. So, you know, hey, boss, I don't have your ammo and food for you. So you find yourself trapped in a lot of these sort of day-to-day tough decisions, you know, whether it be fuel, whether it be just who you deal with. And, you know, there wasn't the type of high-level backing that would have helped helped keep our U.S. troops out of those positions where they had to make those tough choices or those very short-term choices uh, with without the long-term consequences. Then you have a problem in the military, at least of doctrine. Our doctrine is still to this day not geared to, to recognize the role of corruption rent-seeking activity in, in conflict. It's still a very grievance-based doctrine, which says if you solve the grievances of the population, everything, you know, everything will work out fine. That's what we were working on, the hearts and minds, if you remember that for Afghanistan, that was the core phrase. And it's not that grievance is unimportant. Grievance is tremendously important, and corruption, of course, is one of those grievances that can drive people to the insurgents. But the role of, of elites in fostering instability and fragility and having an interest in doing that and having an interest in maintaining political settlements and using violence to keep those political settlements going, none of that's in U.S. doctrine. We don't, for example, train troops that you might have a government that doesn't want to legitimate itself or what to do about it. We don't even tell them it's an option, much less what do you do if you find yourself in that position, whether it's a village leader all the way up to the president of the country. What do you do? So we left people without any tools and we still haven't come up, we've come up with some better tools, but not very many uh, in the process. And then we have a doctrine in the United States that we still do to a large extent, although it's changing now, called security first. And that doctrine says that if you fix the security forces up, you build them up enough and things get secure enough, then you'll deal with governance down the road. But first you got to get security. Well, of course, going back to what I said before about this, this doctrine that that doesn't recognize when elites in the country, including security sector elites, have a desire not to legitimate themselves, have a desire and a need for corruption and rent-seeking activity. You know, so you're building up these highly predatory security sector forces and making them more effectively corrupt and predatory on their populations, which then drives more people into the arms of insurgents um, and makes the country even less secure. And you have this, a theory of change that's not going to work. You want you want to develop a security sector force that responds to the pop- that acts on behalf of the population, but you're trying to be even more predatory and even less responsive to the population. And you're giving them a greater incentive never to be responsive to the population because they're so intertwined in organized crime and corruption and so forth that, you know, rule of law is a threat to them. And so you can't get there from here. So you referenced um, the military's doctrine, which I think this is a terminology that has a little bit of different meaning in the military context than in other contexts. But I take it this is like official U.S. military policy that's supposed to filter down from the top to the rank and file about how you address different 
situations. It's basically like the, the guidelines, Mike, do I understand this correctly, for military operations and how they should approach fighting insurgencies or, or you know, engage in their military security operations more generally. Do I have that basically right? I understand what that term means. It's not quite policy. Policy doctrine can be derived from policy and policy can be derived from doctrine. Doctrine is the understanding of how war uh, or how your environment works and how the U.S. security sector, U.S. military should operate within that environment. I didn't expect you to ask me that question, so I didn't go get the official joint no, definitions. Just, <laughs> I, I've heard this term used by military people, and I think for a lot of our civilian listening audience, it, the meaning won't be completely. So I just want to make sure my understanding yeah. was clear. It's basically the official understanding of how war works, like about what you're supposed to do in different situations. And one yes. of the things you said that was so interesting is that the U.S. military doctrine with respect to issues of corruption and governance was not appropriate. It was not suited to the situation, notwithstanding the fact that top generals back in 2009, 2010 were saying all the right things. This didn't translate into the doctrine that the commanders and soldiers on the ground were implementing. So again, I'm going to ask you, it might be a little bit of an unfair uh, question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Given that you at this point have so much developed expertise in this area, what should the doctrine be? And let me take the hypothetical example that you, not, not hypothetical, you gave a stylized version of it, but it's a very real situation that you gave. So there's a commander in the field who needs to get food and ammunition and supplies to her, I'll get the military terminology wrong, platoon, division, unit, whatever the relevant group of people, um, because they need to eat and they need to fight people who are trying to, to kill them. And in order to do this, the people, the local warlords, the local political powers that control roads and that have a lot of influence over security basically are, are asking for payoffs. And you said very plausibly that the average like mid-level commander, seemed like, I don't want to say that my platoon didn't have enough to eat or that we didn't have enough ammunition to fight because they didn't pay this person off and pay them. So totally makes sense. But what, what should that person do in that situation? You described it, what sounds like a really hard situation. And much as I'm all for, we've got to make fighting corruption a priority, I kind of feel for the person in the field who's trying to fight a war, who's told I can't get the things that I need unless I do this. So if you were writing the doctrine, I'm actually not sure in the military, the doctrine is like a written document. I guess it is. So what should it say? When I'm like, if I'm the commander and I flip to the right pages of the Vittori doctrine, on addressing issues of governance and corruption in the field, what would it say that I should do in this situation? I would take it even one bigger than that and a little bit of military history here. A lot of how we organize our forces today for war fighting is from something called the Goldwater-Nichols Act of 1986. And that was a response to a disastrous attempt to rescue the hostages in Iran, what was called Desert One. And it went terribly wrong because of how we'd organized our forces and, and things like doctrine and training and education. And they literally, Congress went through and basically said, we're gonna reorganize all the national security structure. Um, that's where you get like the modern, the modern duties of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the, and the combatant commanders and so forth. And largely it has been successful, at least compared to you know, anybody who knows those famous operations to rescue the hostages and stuff. I would argue that if, if, you know, a disaster of rescuing the hostage in Iran was a reason to go back and restart, like, how do we understand conflict and what do our military forces need to look like then? That's certainly the response of, you know, not only the disasters in Afghanistan right now, 
But if you remember, like the fall of Mosul in 2014, again, a country, the United States had given massive amounts of weapons and training to that just fell apart when ISIS came up. Um, we have all these situations where these forces keep just falling apart after we've we've supposedly trained them and we supposedly equipped them. Obviously, what we're doing overall in security assistance is, is not going well, and that that so that we need to have a another Goldwater Nichols Act that that's useful for the 21st century that acknowledges how much more we understand about how conflicts develop, who's involved in those conflicts, what does security even mean nowadays, what kind of forces we need. In those areas, that would include things like strategic corruption. As we look at Russia and China and other great power politics places, how strategic corruption comes in. Now, this is some of where the rubber hits the road is a lot of what would need to happen in this, this new doctrine stuff would acknowledge that, you know, we've always loved to arm things, you know, providing weapons and stuff as part of security assistance. Well, we can see with in 2014, when the Iraqi forces fell apart in Mosul, three years after the United States had withdrawn from Iraq after we put, what, $20 billion, I think, in equipment in. Obviously, yesterday with withdrawing Afghanistan, we put roughly $90 billion of equipment in. And again, it just fell apart in two weeks from, from the time Iran was taken to the time Kabul fell. We could even go back to South Vietnam uh, in the Vietnam War in 1975. We need to prioritize or at least put on equal par things like developing governance and good civil military relations and the kind of accountability, oversight, and counter-corruption institutions in security sectors and in the civilian governments over them, and that those need to be at least an equal priority, not just, oh, we wrote a you know, war plan and, oh, by the way, we, you know, we need to make Congress and USAID and, and the civil society guys happy quick, somebody go write a quick annex on corruption stuff. Like that this has to be, that the role of governance in, in any place that the US is gonna get involved needs to not just be some, something you tack on because it keeps Transparency International happy, that this becomes the core of a lot of, of how we understand security assistance uh, from what we call phase zero, which is the pre-conflict stage, all the way through what theoretically should be the stabilization phase and everything in between. That will come up against some political military issues, though, because that means there's countries you decide not to sell weapons to. And some of the countries with the worst civil military relations are some of the biggest buyers of U.S. weapons. And not only are those countries, you know, highly authoritarian, um, but they're also exporting you know, authoritarian regimes and under, deliberately undermining democratic regimes and using strategic corruption locations, for example. It means that how many guys you train to shoot is maybe less important than how many auditors you train to watch what's going on in some other country's security sector. It means you make tough choices when you have leaders in important countries that don't want to reform and put in good civil military relations so forth that they're using corruption as a form of conflict resolution to keep themselves in power, that you make some tough choices to say, you know, yes, we will or no, we won't provide them weapons or under what conditions. So there's a lot more that goes into this than just go change the doctrine because doctrine helps guide how budgets are spent, what's prioritized, what, what intelligence is collected, um, what, even what military specialties you need in the military to hire and recruit for. So that all sounds exactly right to me. And there's a way in which what you just said is not only right on the substance, but it's an implicit critique of the way I asked the question, which was arguably too narrow in focus. But if I'm gonna press you a little bit, I might say it also seemed a bit like an evasion of the question because one can agree with everything that you just said 
That's right, like from the top down, we need to rethink what we're doing, we need to rethink our strategic priorities, we need to recognize the importance of you know, supplying auditors is just as important as training troops and so forth. But still, if there's a conflict situation, we're gonna get the situation that you described earlier, where a commander in the field is forced with this tough choice, do I tolerate or contribute to these systems of corruption in order to get my troops the supplies they need to fight the immediate conflict, or don't I? And the question I was pressing you on, so what you just said is, it's not just about the military doctrine, there's all this other big rethinking that needs to happen, to which I say, yes, but you were the one who said we also need to change the doctrine. And so I want to press you again. I mean, one thing you might say is in that situation, if you can't, if you, the commander of the field, can't get the supplies that you need without engaging with or contributing to the system of corruption, cutting dirty deals with the local elites, you should be pulling back. You should, you should, like, there should be a zero tolerance policy or something close to it that even if it means, you know, su surrendering a strategically important uh, transit route or village or whatever, if you feel like you can't hold the position without cutting corrupt deals with local elites, that means you need to sacrifice what look like important assets on the battlefield to win the larger political struggle or not. And I'm trying to nail you down on what, like, what, what is the Vittori doctrine on the commander in the field? Let's assume we did all the other stuff that we said we should do, but still there's a commander in the field who finds herself in that position. What should she do? I would not go with a zero tolerance. I know that's heresy to say as someone who used to work for Transparency International, particularly Transparency National Defense and Security Program. How we need to envision security and civil military relationships and building governance and stuff is going to be bigger than what one person can write a doctrine on. Not to avoid the question, but I mean, you know, there's whole libraries on this stuff. And someone used to teach at National Defense University with a whole library on this stuff. I can tell you that. So it's very, very difficult to deal with. But I think making it explicit that there are trade-offs when you're paying off those warlords and coming up with the tools of how can you mitigate paying off those warlords under what conditions, how do you, how do you judge is that strategic location worth it or not versus the long-term potential outcomes? And that's where I don't believe we often, we often make those assessments or give commanders the freedom to make those assessments. You know, you just, you take, I mean, key geography, geography really does matter in warfare. But, but recognizing those longer-term trade-offs and giving the top cover to commanders to come up with, with solutions that might involve that are really important. Now, some of the things that this will involve, like the logistics example, and we could give these examples and lots of things. I just happened to pick logistics because of the Warlord Incorporated report. Again, how we actually put priorities in what kind of troops we hire, how many troops we have, what do they do? Part of the reason we used contractors, one was to learn lessons learned from the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, where and, and from our own experiences in Iraq. Convoys are incredibly easy to blow up. They're incredibly easy to attack. You know, anybody watches a bad war movie, you know, you just sit there on the mountain and start shooting RPGs or whatever at the front and back truck. And so it was like, well, if we can outsource this to somebody else, it's not our problem, not our body bags. We just won't ask too many questions what's going on. So long as they get the equipment there, that's great. You know, we don't lose as many troops as we would or like the Soviets dealt with or like we dealt with in Iraq. You know, that, that would require then more oversight uh, for example, bringing in more logistics troops, uh, acknowledging a higher level of casualties, or deciding not to get involved in places as much to begin with. I mean, when we outsource anything, so any sort of security, logistics, et cetera, 
you know, we, we shrink our official military footprint, but we don't shrink the results of that, but we do shrink the accountability and transparency that can often go with that. There's some, this is not an easy set of decisions. So I say it would take like really a, a hard scrub like we did after with Goldwater Nichols to really kind of understand like, how do we, do we want to rebuild our logistics forces? Do we want to rebuild our procurement forces, rebuild our, uh, you know, expand our contracting force and train that force to deal with corruption not just to look for fraud, waste, and abuse, but actual corruption. How does how does contracting lead to corruption in a particular theater? You know, do we reevaluate which countries we work in if there's not civilian oversight of the military and there's no desire by leadership to have civilian oversight of the military, in particular elected civilian oversight, you know, some sort of representative body of the actual populace that there's consent of the governed, that old social contract. These are all really, really tough issues that I think, you know, the United States, if it wants to maintain its superpower status, is going to have to start taking a hard look at. One thing that you said a few times in, in the, the response you just gave, I want, to, I want to pick up on, because it's in some ways the high level generalization or broadening of your particular example of the commander in the field trying to figure out what to do about logistics. And that has to do with weather. We're, we're focused particularly on the United States in our discussion for obvious reasons. Uh, and so we'll continue to focus there, even though our, many of our listeners are, are, are from a, you know, a global audience. But like you talk about the countries that we, meaning the U.S., should be involved with in the first place. And I feel like this has been a theme in a lot of the commentary in the Afghanistan withdrawal. So there was a lot of corruption in the government of Afghanistan that we were supporting, uh, including at very high levels. It's not obvious whether the president himself was directly involved, but certainly people very close to him very involved. And I think one, one can fairly say that he wasn't doing a lot to uh, stamp out the corruption in that government. Uh, of course, though, as you pointed out earlier in your remarks, many of the countries in the world where there are serious security problems, where there's a legitimate terrorist threat, where there are genuine threat of impending humanitarian catastrophe if action is not taken to address it and so forth, there's, there's corruption. And so the question, because you can probably see where I'm getting at, is at what point is the corruption or the failure to deal with corruption such a problem that the correct answer is the United States or the European countries or whatever country we're talking about that might be engaged in supporting a foreign government militarily or otherwise should say, we're not dealing with you uh, because there's too much corruption. It's going to cause more harm than good. You said earlier that you're skeptical of a zero tolerance approach, and I can understand that because you know, the U.S. government itself has corruption. Like if you say if you, if you apply that standard, you wouldn't do business with the U.S. government or the Swedish government or the Swiss government or any government. If, you, if your standard was literally we won't work with or support a government that has any corruption in it. But clearly there comes a point when it's so bad that it's doing more harm than good. To in the long term, from a strategic perspective, to throwing all your support behind this corrupt apparatus. So uh, it's an impossible question to answer how corrupt is too corrupt. So maybe the better way to think about it is how should those decisions be made? Um, do you think that in Afghanistan in particular, they weren't made in the right way? I mean, should there have been a point years ago where the top U.S. decision maker said, you know what, we've tried this for a while, but this government is so corrupt that uh, we're just it's just a waste of money and time and human life to continue to try to prop up a government that doesn't really have any genuine interest in establishing its own legitimacy. Can you talk again? You, you're the one who has expertise, uh, both from an academic perspective and from an on the ground 
perspective on these kinds of issues. So, so how should people like me or other people think about that kind of trade-off? I would actually flip this, the script a little bit. You know, trying to change another country's, well, backing up just a little bit. You know, we, we've had a lot of studies, whether it's Afghanistan, Iraq, whatever. And the USIP did a really interesting study in 2019, but the same guys who did the 9-11 report did a USIP report on Islamist extremism and found that one of the biggest drivers of Islamist extremism, which has arguably gotten much worse, not just, I mean, this was 2019 before the Taliban took over Afghanistan the other, you know, literally yesterday, is, you know, there's more Islamists out there. They're in, in more countries or more of an existential threat in those countries. Um, and they put a lot of that at the feet of bad governance overall. And then the U.S., the way it does its security assistance, actually making that governance worse and thus, thus allowing that political space for, you know, insurgencies and stuff to go from a problem to an existential threat. And so I would flip that a little bit and how we should conceive of how government should work and how we do our interaction with government with security assistance, foreign assist, you know, foreign aid that's not security based. However, we're working with governments. And that is, it's really hard to change another country's governance. Very hard. And the minute you leave, whatever you've done tends to revert back to the mean. But within any society, any polity, there are individuals who want, who want a better government system and are willing to put an awful lot on the line to make that system better. Uh, in Afghanistan, I would argue, and I mean, lots of people have argued, you know, with our reinforcing warlords, arming warlords. We did that as a short-term expediency because nobody was building up the military fast enough to go the right, re- rising Taliban coming back again in 2004, 2005. So we started empowering warlords again. You know, we're dealing with the Karzai regime and we didn't want to go find another regime, which would be very difficult. So, you know, we, we kept backing him even when, you know, regardless of the fact that the corruption and the drug trafficking and all that just kept getting worse and worse and worse and it kept going under Ghani, et cetera, et cetera. In Afghanistan, there were amazing individuals who who wanted to reform the government. But because we had, you know, kind of us and a lot of the international organizations, of course, Pakistan and Russia and China and everybody else, kind of put their thumbs on the scale and closed off that political space and economic space for good people to reform their own government and to create a government that could stand on its own and had the legitimacy and the security sector forces and the economy and so forth. That, that could stand up to a group like the Taliban. We closed that off. We put our thumb on the scale so bad that there just was no space left for good people to make more than marginal change. So I would argue that as we look to how we respond to other countries, we look at less of how do we change their governance and look much more at how do we allow the space to identify good reformers within our own context and then make the space for the kind of reforms that work for that country to move them on a more inclusive representative and legitimate path. So flipping that around. Unpack that a little bit for me, because I, everything you say really resonates and I find very appealing. But again, because I'm not an expert, because I didn't follow this stuff closely, when you say we and here by we mean the U.S. and its allies, closed off that space or put a thumb on the scale, again, unpack that. What exactly did the U.S. do with respect to its policy or its overall approach that closed off or limited the possibility of genuine pluralistic uh, debate and reform within the Afghan government? Was it just that we were so committed to supporting the first the Karzai regime and then the Ghani regime come hell or high water because you know they were our people and we needed to prop them up? Or was it something else about the way the U.S., again, the U.S. and its allies 
approach the engagement. Because again, I'm, I'm all for opening up space and encouraging the, the reformers, the good people who really have a lot more at stake than outside people coming in, you know, in a, in a short term kind of a way, you count 20 years of short term, and empowering those local people to do their thing. But I'm a little bit confused about what was it that the U.S. and its allies did that choked off those opportunities for Afghan citizens in that country, presumably at the elite level, if you're talking about like political elites with that power form, to, to choke off those opportunities. Explain that a bit more. I mean, the whole volumes have been written on this and will be written on this. So just giving, a again, a brief summary, and I'm sure I'm leaving stuff out in this brief summary that anybody will complain about later. But one of the things we know is that the best time to put in a number of reforms or to, or to bring space for those reforms is right after there's been a sub- substantial change or shock to the system. In the case of Afghanistan, that would be after the Taliban fell by early 2002. And remember, they fell very, very quickly. They, were, they fell almost as quickly as the Afghan government ended up falling you know, just over these last couple of weeks, they were they were just as corrupt and brutal and, and illegitimate and stuff back in 2002. And so that would have been the time when all the rules in the game are in flux to really start putting in reforms, to put in, uh, to, to hurriedly put in new institutions, um, accountability mechanisms, providing oversight for those accountability mechanisms, you know, the kind of um, international sanctions against the warlords and stuff to, to limit their ability to use their cash to rearm themselves. The, you know, the, the arms trafficking networks, again, to rearm themselves, although there still would have been plenty of arms there, to allow reform in the government. I mean, people were so excited to start a new government. I mean, you know, you remember how happy people were in 2004 to go vote. And, you know, everything from your, your local small businessman to your local teacher to your, you know, local mayor, whatever, everybody was so excited to do this. And by the time we get to the 2019 elections, maybe 20% of the population in Afghanistan voted because... By then, you know, the ballots were so were stuffed. The, the elections were completely fake. Um, we don't even think it was 20% that really voted. That's just the numbers that came out. But that's probably not even accurate. The whole system was so corrupted that why would you bother voting? Good people can't even get elected if they wanted to. If they even got elected, they probably wouldn't make it to parliament alive. You know, all of that stuff had kind of compounded. So one is when you do it, uh, when the rules are in flux. And we recognize this in the aid community. It's a little bit less recognized, I think, in the civil in the security sector community would be one area that one wants to look at. And then when you put yourself in that sort of mindset, it becomes issues of, okay, what makes, what gives space for people to be able to reform their own governments and establish their own systems? Okay, one is protection of freedom of the press. So freedom of the press goes from a marginal activity to, you know, you really need to protect those, those reporters and so forth from anything from bribery to threats to their life. It starts becoming a priority. Um, when it comes to security sector forces, it's less of how quickly to rearm them, although that's important, but who you're rearming, how you evaluate that, that you're setting up good meritocratic systems for who comes into the military, who gets promoted, what happens to people to get caught accepting bribes, how you punish them, how you throw them out of the service if you need to. Same with cops. Your cops become a priority for rearming and putting in those oversight and transparency and accountability mechanisms with your judges. Again, how you're hiring judges, doing this early on, retraining judges, making sure that they're not taking bribes. What happens if they're taking bribes? How do you establish those institutions, the the independent investigators and so forth, to to allow good people who want to be lawyers and judges to move up through the system, good young people who want to be soldiers to move up through the system, good people want to be politicians to move up through the system and make that space for them to make their own systems. And that's a very different way than 
well, we need to hurry up and do weapons and secure this, this amount of territory. It's a much more institutional approach rather than, than geographical or order of battle-based approach. So interesting, because when you, when you originally talked about the need to create space for people to reform their own governments, I had taken that maybe inaccurately as a suggestion that the U.S. and its allies had been too intrusive and too heavy-handed and did too much with respect to dictating what the new Afghan government would be like. There's a way one could interpret what you just said as suggesting, if anything, it was the opposite, that there was too little insistence on you know, a, a judiciary that operated in a certain way or selection systems for people coming into the military and how they got promoted and who got to be a police officer and so forth. And I guess that's why I'm getting, I know it's a super hard problem. And it's unfair to ask you to give you know, too many answers to questions that, as you say, could, could fill library shelves. But, but still, I think it would be useful not only for me, but, but for our listeners to get some kind of insight here, because I can see on the one hand saying, in a situation where an external military power like the United States engages in an intervention that's at least initially about protecting its own national interests and its own national security, the US, that, that intervening power should be as hands-off as possible when it comes to allowing the local people to shape their own government and to give them the breathing space to you know, do their own thing and make their own mistakes and put it together the way they want it. But I can also see an argument that actually no, because if you're that hands-off, what will happen is that the powerful and well-connected will secure their own monopoly on power and turn it into, at best, a patronage system and at worst, a kleptocracy. And that if the intervening power is going to decide they're going to engage in a nation-building activity, no footnote, question whether you should do that in the first place. But if you're going to, then you should be insisting that you need to have a meritocratic bureaucracy, that you need to take the following six steps to ensure genuine judicial independence, et cetera, et cetera. So you see the tension I'm struggling with. Like, was the your point about doing it early is, I think, completely persuasive to me. But, but what should the U.S. government have been doing in that early stage? Again, you emphasize the importance of giving opportunities and voice to the good people in Afghanistan who would like to reform their own government. There's a little bit of a circularity because doing all the good governance reforms you just described, like a meritocratic selection system and so forth, those are the kinds of things that those good people would insist on. But how do we, or again, if there's going to be an external power like the U.S. engaging in this intervention and then being directly involved in what we now call nation building, what should the role be? How interventionist should it be? Should there be strict conditions for continuing security or non-security related aid that you undertake very specific governance reforms? Or should it be a little bit more hands-off? Like we'll provide a backstop, but you guys do your own thing. You see what I'm struggling with. What can you say about that conundrum? I think it's an important conundrum. One is, you know, we didn't take a hands-off approach to Afghanistan. We took an extremely hands-on approach. We were, you know, um, it's just where we where we put our emphasis on. Part of it was the Iraq War. I mean, people don't realize just how much switch, how much expertise and attention switched out of Afghanistan for for the 2003 invasion of Iraq. So some of that I would I would blame on that. But none of the partners that went in there in 2002 and three and four were interested in putting the time or the effort, et cetera. For example, to rap- rapidly create a functioning military that could at least control the main cities and, and the key roads, um, you know, that had gone through a proper basic training and, you know, we're going to 
look for good officers and kind of get that ball rolling to ensure good selection that, you know, the warlords and, and the elites that had an incentive in corruption didn't get their hands on on too much of that process. I mean, there's always going to be some corruption in the process. There's no such thing as no corruption. Federal's 51. If men were angels, we wouldn't need government. I mean, that's, you know, the great thing about the founding fathers. We don't assume a perfectibility of humans. We just, who watches the watchers? And we set up those checks and balances system to keep those within within bounds that don't that don't completely undermine the ability for reforms and, and a responsive system, a system that's primarily responsive to people, to the, to the citizenry, at least a lot of the time, maybe not most of the time, but at least a lot of the time enough to be a functioning, a functioning governance system that can be fixed over time. And so, you know, it would have focused much more on how do we, how do we rapidly establish a functioning military? How do we identify good leaders and make sure they're promoted through the system? How do we insulate them to make sure that what do we do if they seem to be veering off? How does that system develop its, its own ability to monitor its own? How do we develop a good inspector general program and give them the independence they need to function? How do we develop a good internal affairs program, give them what they need to function, and then let them go off and do it and provide kind of those right and left limits in case they go off the rails? Same with police. Um, very few police were being trained, and the training was often abhorrent. It's not even clear how many were trained because there were you know, there were consistent rumors I've never seen verified that they were kind of training the same guys over and over and over again as part of uh, how we wrote the contracts and stuff. A lot of issues how we wrote contracts in these. But you didn't get good cops on the, on the streets capable of just providing basic law and order and security to the people. You know, there was nothing that not only were we not, we weren't mitigating the warlord's capabilities, we were actually enhancing them because we took shortcuts. We didn't want to take the time to build up a proper military and identify good people to be able to run it. it. Those are hard and it takes a lot of troops and it takes a lot of time. And, and so it takes years to create a strategic captain. You're talking, you know, seven to eight years just to make good captains and stuff. And so we took shortcuts and we're just like, fine, you warlords, here's a bunch of weapons, you know, go deal with your areas. And if you, know, you can be the greatest captain you want in the world or the greatest master sergeant you want in the world and piece of terrain. And we had some amazing captains and master sergeants in the Afghan military. But if everyone above you is is taking bribes, if they're taking the weapons that should go to you and your troops and they're putting it in their own personal stashes or they're selling them on the black market, they're absconding with you and your troops pay. You know, they're using the helicopters for their own personal joy rides or for drug trafficking and not using it to medevac your guys out or provide air support. All of that together, you can be the greatest captain you want. But when you've put those people in power and you don't do anything to stop them and you keep making them more powerful, you can't be surprised when it all collapses in the end. And we didn't do anything to mitigate those those predatory power structures. We just kept reinforcing them and reinforcing them and reinforcing them. And so I think we do need a real conversation of, you know, how do we understand like what what security assistance things has worked? Why why did South Korea largely work eventually in creating a very robust democracy with a good with a solid military and good civil military relations? Why did Taiwan mostly work, even though, again, those were two highly corrupt countries with terrible human rights records, but yet they became good, solid democracies. And, you know, what went wrong in Pakistan, which was roughly the same time as these issues were going on. I think there's a lot more study that needs to be done, but also a lot more, you know, not only first do no harm should have been one of our first rules. We did a lot of harm and we just kept compounding the harm. And we had lots of neighbors and other organizations that were healthy to help us compound the harm. 
Yeah, so the, I'm glad you brought up the South Korea example because I, I suspect that it's, it's, in a way, it's too easy right now in the aftermath of what happened in Afghanistan to dismiss the security first people as foolish and short-sighted. But I, I'm not one of those people, but I imagine that someone like that could say, wait a second, you're only, you're focusing too much on one case. If in South Korea, the U.S. government had refused to provide security assistance for the South Korean government because of the accurate view that at the highest levels of the South Korean government, there was massive corruption and patronage, the world would look very different and arguably worse. Um, and this is not to say anything new, but just to kind of restate your point. That it seems like it's a very hard problem with really challenging trade-offs. Um, but one thing I did want to come back to, and we're almost out of time, but I wanted to circle back, uh, picking up on something you just said, but also something you said earlier in our conversation. Um, and it's that my impression as an outsider to this, just as a, you know, a civilian who knows what I read in the papers, it's not like this was a surprise. People had been saying for a long time as you put it earlier in our conversation, that the massive corruption in the Afghan government was likely to lead to the way you put it in military terminology is mission failure. But the collapse of the government, the ineffectiveness of the military, all of this stuff, the, uh, the special inspector general for Afghan reconstruction put out these regular reports. I would, I'm on the email list for whatever reason. So I would get them like every, I felt like every week sometimes, but pretty regularly. I didn't read them all in detail, but the story was, was consistently the same. And so it's, I guess, somewhat surprising and kind of frustrating that this happened despite the fact that it was not only foreseeable, but foreseen. And I suppose one thing that makes me wonder is what would be need to happen within an organization like the U.S. military to give the right people the right incentives to take this stuff seriously, right? Because it's one thing to say at the very high level, of course, we need to you know, consider these issues. But one of the challenges that strikes me just emerging out of the remarks that you made is that a lot of... Thing, progress towards good governance and legitimacy and suppressing corruption is very difficult to measure. And the impact, if they're positive impacts, are going to be diffuse and long term. So I can sort of imagine, I mean, I think back to what I read about the Vietnam War, which is there was an incentive to count structures destroyed and enemy combatants killed and so forth, because those things were easy to count and to show progress. And I gather in Afghanistan, we broadened it a little bit. They would be counting things like positive contacts with local, you know, people. But again, there seems to be this focus on things that you can easily count because if you're a, you know, a, a lieutenant wanted to be promoted to captain, or if you're a colonel and want to be promoted to general, you know, what are your career incentives? And they might not be to take these things into account. Maybe I'm completely off base on this. And you as someone who's both studied this issue and served in the military will have a different perspective. But I guess what I'm trying to get at is, Again, returning to the idea of what the Vittori doctrine would be on all of this, or the re reforms that we would like to see, as an institution, what could be done in an organization like the U.S. military to give people the incentives, to basically align the incentives so that people actually have a personal reason to take all this stuff seriously, like, so that it will affect things like their promotion, their reputation, their future career opportunities. Am I wrong that that's kind of a problem here? And if it is a problem, how do you address it? I think your question in itself highlights one of the problems, which is how do you get the military to fix this? Um, militaries 
have a supporting role in governance, but they should not be your primary role in governance. And that was actually what that's been one of the problems that's been highlighted for many years is this sort of pro-consul sort of role for, for combatant commanders and so forth, where often they have a more direct communications line to the president, the State Department and USCID have far less funds, far less ability to you know, hire people, attract good people. They're much smaller. Um, General Mattis, who was Secretary of Defense, said something to the effect of, you know, if you keep underfunding State Department, I'm going to need a lot more ammunition. Your question in itself of saying, well, what does DOD do? Well, DOD shouldn't be your primary governance thing, or we've got a real problem from a civil military relations. What is the appropriate role of a, of a military in, in a democracy problem? It does keep me up at night how many people expect the military to fix things. Militaries can do amazing things. You want to airlift 100,000 people out? Those are your folks to do it. You, you know, guard the gate and bring people in. Unfortunately, with tragic consequences this week, that's what, that's what militaries do. You want them to build a government. That's not what militaries can or should be doing. So one is we need to, this goes back to what I said earlier, we need to broaden how we understand what security means and how that we provide quote unquote security assistance, government assistance in countries. I mean, as much of the story could be, how do we block malign actors funding, predatory actors funding within a state from our own international financial system could be just as important, which is primarily a treasury thing, could be far more important than whether it put a thousand more guys in the ground. Do you, that's not a DOD job, nor should it be a DOD job. We have a lot of problems as a democracy if it is a DOD job how you work with parliaments to provide proper oversight of the military. There is a supporting role of the military, but most of that is, is a state department issue and a larger, a larger issue of how do we deal with governments that don't want representative democracy and how do we incentivize them to encourage election free and fair elections and, and having those parliaments have a role in their societies. That's not a government. That's not a military job. And this has been one of the big problems is, We've made security a military thing and all things are military. And now they give out aid assistance and they're supposed to do economic development and all these things that none of these should be military things. So we need to go, we need to return to the days I would argue, which is heresy as a former military person where of the days where the state department was truly in charge of foreign policy and military and use of violence is a subset of that. And that goes under state department. And we need to have a broader look at what is corruption and what is governance. And this is going to be really important with things like strategic corruption. One of the examples I like to give is 2014 in Ukraine. Anybody who studied militaries, you know, the role of Crimea and the Black Sea Fleet and all this is hugely important. Even if you've liked the poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade or whatever. These are hugely important issues. And in 2014, you know, as, as a former military person, if I were expecting the Black Sea Fleet which was owned by Ukraine to be overtaken by Russia, I would expect a, like a really big sea battle and land battles for the ports and all of this stuff. But in 2014, when Russia took Crimea and the Ukrainian fleet there, you didn't see the major battle. There was hardly a shot fired. Why? Because there was a combination of high levels of corruption in the Ukrainian military, lack of vetting on the, on the Ukrainian military side, and the ability of the Russian military to basically bribe people from the senior officials in the Ukrainian Navy to switch sides and bring their ships and their ports with them. Like that's a massive strategic military thing. I don't have to fight the Ukrainian Navy. I just have to bribe it over. That's a massive military response. But most of how I deal with that is not a military solution. 
that's a solution that comes with governance and state department and the treasury department and all of that. And, and DOD is a secondary role. And so again, uh, the understanding of what does it take to create the space for democracies to survive did not have your generals hand over your military forces to the enemy for, you know, for a bribe. How do you identify them before they do? What do you do if you catch them in the process? How do you stop that from occurring? Those are the sorts of things that, that, you know, would have kept the Afghan government likewise from defecting to the other side. But only, only a small part of that is DOD control, even though it might be about the military forces. It's only a small part of the answer. That's really helpful. And it really underscores the idea that recognizing the link between corruption and security is not necessarily a prescription for the military to get more involved in anti-corruption. It may be a prescription for other entities that have, one hopes, more expertise or interest in those issues to be more directly involved in the overall security-related decision-making rather than making it essentially a military operation with a couple of cosmetic you know, advisors brought in to, as you said, appease the Transparency International folks and say, look, we have like an anti-corruption team. We're almost out of time. You've been very generous with your time. I just want to ask in some ways to look ahead uh, in thinking about these issues. And you've already kind of answered this question, but I just want to maybe end in the following way. So there's a cliche in uh, discussions of military planning and military histories that people are always fighting the last war. They're always, they, they, they take the lessons from what just happened and they apply them to a new situation without necessarily recognizing that things have changed. So I guess I'll, I'll use that reference as an invitation to think, looking ahead, these issues related to the intersection of corruption and governance on the one hand and security, whether it's domestic security or international security on the other hand, are not going to go away. Um, I think those issues are likely to persist. They might not necessarily look the same in the future as they have in Afghanistan and Ukraine and, and so forth. So if you try to look ahead and maybe identify things that maybe we're not thinking enough about right now, you know, we've talked a lot about lessons we can learn from Afghanistan, but I'm inviting you to go maybe go beyond that or think about lessons that we should be learning that don't necessarily come from Afghanistan or things that come out of Afghanistan, lessons we might overlook in the fighting the last war genre. What would you say, again, if there are maybe one, two, three things you'd really want to end our conversation by emphasizing these are important issues on the horizon at the intersection or nexus between anti-corruption governance on the one hand and uh, security on the other, what might those things be? Uh, two of them, a shorter term one and a longer term one. The shorter term one is as we watch what happened to Afghanistan, or we, we look again at what happened to Iraq and Mosul in 2014, we have a lot of governments that we have put a lot of security sector assistance to that are just as corrupt and just as rapacious and predatory. And I think we, you know, we need to adjust our understanding of how those states work. And hopefully the intelligence community is taking a hard look at what, who else might collapse in a similar way, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa as the U.S. and France withdraw, what's going to happen to those regimes there and, and what, are the, what are the outcomes of that and how, how do we mitigate that? Because an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Now we're in the many pounds of cure in, these, in all of these places, just like we were in Afghanistan. It's, it's, it's much tougher now. But what can we start to do now to lessen that probability of an Afghan-like result, particularly in those locations? So that's the short, shorter term one, because that could literally happen any day. The longer term one is, is there's a big talk on the defense sector of the focus on rising China as our priority. 
And my concern is that that focus on rising China leaves out a lot of the lessons of anybody who's looked at a rising international power that's got additional uh, adventurism. And I'll use examples from the Cold War. You know, everybody wants to find how do we how do we fight China today? Our weapons aren't, you know, often aren't what we need to fight a fight this great power China, which is a legitimate argument. But then the second part is always, so we're just going to ignore the rest of the world, which is why you're seeing a lot of this pullback in other parts of the world, in Afghanistan, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, and so forth. And I would argue that this is one of those situations where we need to walk and chew gum. If you think of during the Cold War, we, we, we had to be ready to fight the Soviets at any time, and nuclear weapons, and mutually assured destruction, all this. But most of the actual warfare, and most of the actual battles took place far away from Russia, far away from Europe, you know, Vietnam, Korea... Congo, Nigeria, Latin, Central America, you know, Iran-Contra, all, all of those sorts of places. So if we just focus on fighting China, you know, most of what's going to happen is not going to be at or near China, although Taiwan could be the exception. Most of it's going to occur in places like Mozambique and Sub-Saharan African places where China is, is using, in some cases, strategic corruption and reinforcing authoritarian regimes and patronage because those regimes are more likely to side with them than democracies are. That also means if this really is, as the national security strategy points out, the skinny one that came out in March, about democracies versus autocracies largely, that means we need to be focusing on, on good governance and, and how, do we, how do we provide relatively democratic regimes with the resilience to withstand strategic corruption um, coming in from Russia, from China, from others, far away from China. We have to be able to walk and chew gum, both deal with the actual military side of how, you know, as they say in the Princess Bride, never get involved in a land war in Asia. Um, how do we deal with that possibility? But also, how do we reinforce governance and media and uh, civil military relations in those countries where China really wants to make a play? And those aren't going to be there. And I, my fear is that we're only focusing on the very military China centric, but the real fighting of what does the world look like going forward is really going to be everywhere else in many ways. Great. Well, that's um, extremely helpful. This has been, uh, in some ways, a very sobering and, and depressing uh, week. Really, we should say 20 years leading up to this week. Uh, but I very much appreciate you sharing your insights and expertise on what we can learn uh, from the experiences that we've just been uh, witnessing and how we can think about addressing some of these challenges uh, going forward. So thank you for sharing your time with me and with all of our listeners here on the latest episode of Kickback, the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast. Again, my name is Matthew Stevenson, and my guest on this episode has been Jody Vittori, Professor of Practice at the Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. Jody, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me today. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Kickback. If you want to learn more about Jody's work, check out the show notes. If you haven't already, follow us on Twitter under at KickbackGAP. We look forward to meeting you under the new hashtag KickbackMeetup. If you want to support the podcast even further, write us a review on your favorite podcast platform, or if you can spare a few bucks, become a Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash kickbackpodcast. Kickback is a joint production by the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Kürbis, Matthew Stevenson, 
Jonathan Kleinpass, and me, Christopher Starke. With music by Kaihan Golkar. That's it for today. Have a great week. <laughs>